Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I will be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. As always at the end of each episode, I am joined by my two psychotherapist daughters, who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. You'll quickly see that not all therapists agree. So without further ado, it's time to find out who my next guest is. So Roman Chatterjee, I am so delighted that you've joined me on my Therapy Works podcast. You're a physician, an author, a podcaster, a broadcaster, and much, much more. I'm just so thrilled I'm going to get a chance to have time with you. And maybe start with, it's a big question, or it could be a small question, but is tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome. First of all, thanks for inviting me, Julia. You've been on my podcast twice, two conversations I've really, really enjoyed having. Uh, so very much looking forward to, to, to being on your show now and, and seeing where we go with this conversation. You know, as you say that, the first thing to be open and honest about is I'm having a slightly challenging day today. Hmm. I'm okay, but the ideal part of me would have rather have been in a better emotional state when talking to you for your podcast. That's just me being honest because at 4.30 this morning, I got a phone call. Uh, my mother, who's 81, she had fallen. She set off her alarm. Uh, they then called me. So I went around at half four, oh. got my mum back up. Uh, spent a couple of hours with her, got her settled and then came back. But I've sort of been chasing my tail a little bit today with a bit of fatigue uh, <laughs> thrown in as well. So that's just me being honest, you know, in, in the spirit, I think, of your podcast and these kind of authentic conversations. Uh, but as you say, challenges, would I say that's a challenge? I don't know. In that challenge, what comes up for me is the years you took care of and looked after your father. And I imagine now finding yourself taking care of your mother is a challenge in itself, but also brings up that you've done this before. This is like a new experience will bring back, I imagine, the difficulty and the complexity of when you had to look after your dad. Or maybe not. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. But, it, but it's different. A lot has changed in my life since my... Dad died in March 2013, so coming up to 10 years now. Wow, 10 years. Mm. Gosh, how did that happen? A bit of context back then, you know, for many years, pretty much for most of my adult life, until my dad died, a lot of it was, a lot of it revolved around dad's care. Dad had lupus, uh, he was on kidney dialysis, and one of the reasons I moved back from Edinburgh, I, I studied in Edinburgh. I worked there for two years after. I think I thought I was going to stay there, but I moved back to the Northwest to help my mother and my brother look after my dad. And that was from 2003 all the way till till dad died. Now, back then, Julia, 
I think I was emotionally quite immature. Let's put it like that. Or certainly I feel I'm a lot more emotionally mature these days than I was Mm. back then. Back then, my identity was totally wrapped up in looking after my father and being the person in the family, even though I was the youngest, I, I sort of had the role in the family. I think it was given to me, but maybe I took it on myself, who knows, where I was kind of in charge. Like if there's something going on with dad, like I'd sort it out. And, you know, since dad died, I've gone on a huge personal growth journey of finding out who I really am. What is my authentic self? What does that look like? You know, I remember in the months after my dad died, I I just go walking. Hmm. And the question would keep coming up for me, Julia, you know, whose life are you leading? Are you leading someone else's life or are you leading your own? A lot of that journey has, uh, you know, I've spoken about in public, particularly over the last couple of years. I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of inner work. I feel... I feel really good these days, Julia. I feel really happy, really contented. And so what's really interesting is that over the past few years, as mum's care needs have crept up, initially, I found it frustrating. I almost feel bad saying that, but that's the truth. Initially, I felt it frustrating because I felt, oh man, I did this for 15 years pretty much in total with dads. Whilst all my peers were getting ahead and doing their thing and traveling like I never did that stuff in my 20s sex and drugs and rock and roll you didn't get to do that uh, yeah well <laughs> let's not say too too much <laughs> in public but um certainly you know what a lot of my friends were doing at a particular time I wasn't right and it's no coincidence that my passion for my career me finding my passion within medicine it is no accident that that has happened since my dad died, because if dad was still alive, here's the irony, I wouldn't be doing any of this because people listening to this, Julia, who are carers will know how all-consuming being a carer is. So in fact, and I'm not even sure I would have learnt lessons that I've learnt since my dad had died had I not gone through that experience. So a lot of what I do in public I think is predicated on what I have learned, yes, as a doctor, but also as a son who was a carer, who had to look after a family and a an elderly sick person for many years. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, re- it's a really interesting dynamic for me. So now that mum needs help and care, initially there was a bit of a, not a pushback, like I can go and do it, um, but it's not my identity. Like I don't, attached to it in the same way that I used to attach. I'll do it. it. It needs doing. We don't have enough care. We're trying to get care, me and my brother. It's not that easy uh, to get the care that is required, but we're making progress there. Can I pause you about your new identity? Because it's so fascinating in that, in some ways, the in the adversity of your father's chronic illness and sort of long-term needs which were completely all-consuming. You had nothing left over to focus on your career or much else of your life. You could just about keep it going. But it was the identity of being a good son and I'm the fixer in the family. And now through, in some way, going through the pain of his loss and actually having the freedom to focus a bit more on you. And I think that's interesting for people to, mm-hmm. to hear is that we have to have space, emotional space and time 
and the opportunity may be a luxury, but we don't change unless we give ourselves the space. Like you went for walks and then that allowed you to ask that unbelievably significant question. Who am I? What am I for? And as you've changed over the years, now that you're looking after your mum, being a good son, of course you want to be a good son, but in the, as a sort of sense of a false identity of needing to be performatively yeah. good isn't who you are anymore. That this You're much more fully formed in lots of different ways internally. And that gives you robustness to be more fully who you yeah. are and manage the difficulty of your mum's needs. Yeah, that you know, the, the word there was really, that, that really landed in my heart was performative. One of the things I've learned, Julia, in my life, but as I... I look at my patients as well, is that the same behavior can have a different impact depending on the energy or the intention behind it. So caring for my dad, that wasn't an option for me, right? I didn't even consider, should I do this? Should I take some time for myself? And no, that's what you, that's what I did. Your duty. Duty. But I'm not sure that duty came from a good place. Actually, to be to be really brutal now, looking back, I don't no. regret what I did. I really don't. I did what I thought was the best thing that I could do. And, you know, I tell you, Julie, it was really interesting. In the days after dad died, before his funeral, some of the consultants who had been involved in looking after dad said to me, we have never, ever seen a son or a family member do what you have done for your dad for the past few years. And at the time, right, that was almost, it was nice to hear that, right? But actually, if I look back now, I'm like, yeah, but that came at a huge cost. That came at a huge cost, right? That caused, honestly, conflict in the early part of my marriage. Now, to be really clear, I've got a fantastic relationship with my wife, but I will say that that conflict and those obstacles that we've been through and come out the other side have actually made us this strong and this tight. And I actually wouldn't have it any other way. In fact, if I look back now, Julia, without those little bits of conflict, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to examine those parts of myself. So whilst many of us want to avoid conflict, if you can reframe the way you look at conflict, it's like, wow, there's an opportunity here. Yeah, I can either push back on here and go, oh, maybe I am putting me last, I'm putting my father first, and I'm putting my wife somewhere in between. But what is interesting, and I completely agree with you, and I think it's not understood in our culture because we don't know how to do it well enough, is that little nodal points of tension and conflict are opportunities to look at what's really going on, what really matters. But when we ignore it, it becomes this pile that gets bigger and bigger that then becomes something that is actually between us rather than something that we can work out together. But what we haven't got back to is the performative word because you were on your way to that. Performance versus authenticity is Mm. probably one of those tensions that I've thought about and sat with for at least three or four years now. And it's really interesting, Julia, I'm talking to you from my podcast studio. Obviously, you've been here twice one of the things that 
I've been working really hard on, or, you know, it's actually ironic to say working hard on, because actually it's not working hard on it. It's almost letting go rather than working hard. Allowing yourself. Yeah, allowing. That's a beautiful word. Gareth, who you've met, my, my videographer, you know, we talk a lot about this, about can the wrongan on the mic be the same person as the wrongan off the mic? tonally everything can you not put on a performative element when you're on the mic and i i think initially i found that very hard because there's a mic in front of you so you start talking like this because there's a microphone here now and this is how someone in front of a microphone should talk but can i be the same person on and off the mic performance comes in i think when you don't feel secure in who you are so you perform to be someone who you're not in order to be validated. That is my whole life in a nutshell. You know, when I was thinking about what are these obstacles, you know, the obstacle to be my authentic self, the obstacle of actually being able to say, I disagree with you, I have a different perspective here. If someone ever disagrees, someone who I liked ever would disagree or have a different perspective and would shout it loudly or speak it, I wouldn't challenge it. I would shrink. Shrink. I would I would literally go quiet because I wanted to avoid conflict at all costs. And and the truth is, Julia, if I look back on my podcasting career, you know, we're almost five years in. Which is an explosion, by the way. I mean, that is the right word. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I f I'm super, super lucky with how well the podcast has gone. It's not just luck. I think you're linking it with the paradoxes. The less you've performed and the more real and authentic you've been, the more you've been heard and validated rather than putting on a, an armour or performance that then in some way narrows the connection with you and the listener. Yeah, I've learned that some of the best conversations, Julia, I have had... In the moment, I'm not sure. Like in the moment and straight after, I often don't feel good. I feel, oh, wow, did I say too much? You know, oh, we're going to have to check that. We're going to have to sort that in the edits. But I've actually learned, no, no, those are the best ones. Those are the ones where you almost forgot there was a mic. Really? And that really is my goal is for my guest and myself is, it, can we almost get to a point where there's no mics rolling that, that no one's conscious off the mic and that's why personally I go long because I think in the second hour everyone's settled in and it's almost as if the mics mm. aren't there but you know going back to performance I think there is a lot of performative authenticity these days you know we can perform it even being authentic I think I think social media channels absolutely thrive on this I don't know I, I, I say I've struggled with it but I feel I feel in a much better place with it. Although, Julie, what's really interesting, and I'd love your perspective on this, as someone who's helped thousands, tens of thousands of clients through all kinds of issues. You know, when you go and do the inner work, whatever that means to, 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 to many different people, you often think, oh, yeah, I've got this one sorted now. I'm, I've cracked this one. Clean that one. I'm no longer a people pleaser. And do you know what's really interesting is that and I honestly thought I'd crack that one. And a few weeks ago, I won't say who this person was or what exactly happened, but someone who I kind of respect misinterpreted something that I said and left me a message, sort of quite a blunt 
I think quite an aggressive message. Mm. And I reverted to an old version of myself initially. Well, I don't know why I did. Perhaps you could help me unpick this. You know, I I was a bit sleep deprived because again, mum had fallen that morning, right? So it was on a day where I was already emotionally depleted, maybe a bit physically depleted. And, And when we're not at our best, that's when these kind of core patterns, in my experience, start to come to the surface. So I changed who I was and I became overly apologetic. I started to over explain. And then I sat with it over the weekends. And I thought, no, you don't even mean that. That's not even true. So I actually addressed it the week after when I was feeling good. And I actually just said, listen, I, I don't think I should have responded to you last week. I wasn't in the best place. I was feeling quite emotional. This is what I think about the situation. I understand that this is how you've interpreted it. I said, from my side, the intention behind what I've done is this. And I can look at myself with a mirror and go, that intention was honest, it was authentic, it was full of integrity. But I also understand that you've interpreted it in this particular way. And I felt better about it afterwards. I don't think I was perfect. Can't be perfect. Yeah, maybe there is no perfection. It's messy, this stuff, but you found your voice. I found my voice in a way that, you know, I never would have done before. I had this tension where I'm slightly frustrated about the first response, but I'm trying to be compassionate to myself and say, hey, listen, look, yeah, you were knackered, you were emotionally worn out, and some of your old tendencies came back. Fine. You rested, you recuperated, and you didn't just leave it. You then went and addressed it in a much more authentic way. So I guess that is something I've been thinking a lot about over the past few weeks, why I reverted back and how I can potentially prevent doing that if that kind of situation presents itself in the future. I mean, if that's a question to me, in some ways, I don't think we can, in that we have these templates, these early templates that are wired in us, that are in extremists, and extremists would be in sleep deprivation um, and pushing an old button, will always, I think, emerge. And what you have wonderfully shown people is that we may have our first response, but when you have more awareness and more trust in yourself, you can then have a second response and go back in with more kind of fully speaking out for yourself and having your own voice. And I don't know if you want to talk about this, and and maybe this isn't the right kind of question, but I was wondering, as a child of parents who came to this country from Calcutta, having a voice and feeling you have a legitimate voice to speak when you are not born here, well, you were born here, but your parents weren't born here, maybe part of the roots that are in your system? Is that a risky question? No, no, not. I'm very happy to go here. It's a really good point that there's kind of several levels to that. Just going back to the start there, dad came here in, I think, 1962, mum in 1972. So immigrants from India to the UK for a better life, right? So more opportunities for their kids and for them. Yeah, and I really think primarily for their kids. It very much was this kind of, we'll do whatever we have to do, but we want a better life for our children. So the the classic kind of 
I was going to say immigrant mentality, but I can certainly say Indian immigrant mentality because I'm familiar with that. Of course, not every Indian family is the same, to be really clear, but... No, of course not. I've certainly seen this pattern a lot in other people like myself in similar families. There is a huge amount of focus put on academic success. Badges of honour. Like, my son's a doctor. My son's a lawyer. Oh, yeah. You've heard this before. It's almost a cliche, but you, you have three options. Doctor, engineer, lawyer. That is literally your world. You, you are going to become one of those three, right? Because they're reliable income. We can smile at it as as just smiling, but actually... We are wired as human beings to survive. And if our first option, I was talking to a client this morning whose parents were also immigrants. She was brought up not from a place of safety, but everything in the household was how do we keep the household going? How do we pay the bills? And part of that is her learning so that she can pay the bills. That This isn't a small thing. No. This is a life requirement that it isn't a luxury. Yeah, uh, totally. And so it completely makes sense when you think about what was in their minds. And, you know, dad faced a huge amount of discrimination when he was here and to the point where he had to change speciality uh-huh. because, you know, he was a, you know, I only learned this stuff after dad died, how good a surgeon he was. Oh, no. You know, he was in obstetrics and gynecology. People who worked with him said he was a brilliant surgeon. He was one of the quickest. He was meticulous. He was neat. And it was only... You know, I learned that after my dad died. And I only learned this from my dad maybe in the few months before he he did die. He said, I used to train all the local surgeons. I'd teach them how to do everything. You know, I'd teach them all my tricks, everything. And then two years later, they'd be jumping me. And it, this kept happening. And they all kept getting made consultant. I was just stuck at the same grade and same level. And oh. ultimately, he made a choice for his family stability. He moved to a speciality that he could not stand Honestly, he didn't he didn't enjoy it at all. Oh my goodness, that is horrendous. But he did it so he could make consultants to give us that stability. And I, you know, now as a dad myself, as a parent myself, who does a job that he truly loves, right? I'm living my purpose and my dream. That wasn't an option for my mum and dad, right? You know, what what no. living your purpose? What do you know? I mean, what's that got to do with anything? But as I say, one of the problems with that, and I, th- I think I've spoken to you about this whole one, I know you've read it in my previous book on, on happiness, that yeah. one of the consequences of that kind of upbringing is certainly for me that I thought on some deep unconscious level, I got the impression at least that I was only loved or worthy of love and validation when I was top of the class or got full marks. Goodness me, that is a high threshold, right? Top of the class, full marks. It is. And to be to be clear, you know, I, I can still remember, you know, 19 out of 20 in a test. Well, okay, but why didn't you get 20? Well, you came second. Who who came top? Seriously. This is not uncommon, Julie, in immigrant families. That's the thing. And again, saying this with compassion, mum and dad, I'm sure, did that with love. They're like, no wrong, and you're capable. Um, we want you to be the best you can be. We get told by our parents a lot of the time, you have to be better than your white counterparts if you want to succeed, mm. right? It's it's really sad, actually, to think about that now. That makes me, actually makes me feel a bit physically sick. It's not said in a racist or a discriminatory way. It's like, look... This is the reality. That was my dad's experience. He's like, no, unless you're better, you're not going to get those jobs. So you have to be better. 
So you grow up with this mentality, right? And I can see my entire life, so many of my patterns comes right down to this core concept, which is, I don't feel that who I am is enough. I have to perform, I have to achieve, mm. I have to be better than in order to feel, yeah, that's, that's, you know, I'm okay. I'm loved, I'm validated. In that not being enough, the image that I got as you were speaking, that everything is about what you're giving out, learning your exams, being a good son, doing for others. And it isn't anything about a reciprocal connected process that you are connected with yourself and kind of meeting the world from a place that is centered within yourself. It's much more like constantly, slightly on alert, looking for like, how can I meet the world and please the world so that I am liked enough and validated? For sure. It, it really is. And I think a lot of people actually recognize that. Yeah. Do you know what's funny, Julia, is that I was very open about this story in Happy Mind, Happy Life, like in a way that I never would have done before. Like I wouldn't have had the confidence and the security to reveal that about myself publicly. You know what's really interesting, Julia? I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but Happy Mind, Happy Life was my fifth book in the last five years. And when I write, I have a process where my wife will not look at it until the very end. She goes, no, no, I want to look at it fresh at the end. So normally a few weeks before deadline, she'll then look at the final manuscript, go through it, and she comes up with some brilliant edit suggestions and insightful comments. And this time she said, hey, Rangan, listen, are you sure you want some of this in your book? Are you sure you want people to read this? Because she was trying to protect me. You're really exposing yourself here. Yeah, but I said to her, look, yeah, I've processed this. I'm okay with it. Like, I'm, I feel ready to share. I'm not, I'm no longer trying to perform and portray a certain image, a false image. No, this is who I am. I'm very proud of who I am. I think most people, I've got some qualities. I've got some things that I could do an improvement on. Like, I'm a human. I'm an imperfect human like everybody else. Yeah. And, and so I felt comfortable doing that. But speaking to what you said, Julia, that many people will resonate with that. I remember on the book tour, I would share this story and I'd maybe go into a bit more depth. And I thought maybe only immigrant kids are gonna resonate with this. And the amount of people afterwards from non-immigrant families who would say, I have the same pattern. I have the same pattern. It's me. I have a similar version in my life. And you know, the most personal is the most universal. But you think one thing I've not, I don't think thought about much before and this question you mentioned about race and culture, I think this is something I've shut down, right? I think I've really, I, I don't know what's going to come up here, right? But I... Okay, nor do I, I'm interested. I, I grew up in a very middle-class, affluent, nice suburb in Cheshire. And in the 70s and the 80s, we were one of only probably two Indian families in the town and the village. All the schooling I did at a young age, you know, there's hardly any non-white kids there. So you don't realize it, but you're always trying to change who you are to fit in because at school, you've got one culture mm. and at home, you've got your two parents from India. And you know on one level that they're not marrying up. So particularly in your teenage years, you really try and rebel against your home culture because you want to fit in with the people around you. And as you get a bit older again, you go, well, 
you know, you kind of, I do identify with being British, but also with my Indian culture, you know, and it's not about choosing. It's like, well, isn't this a great thing? You've got, you've got elements of both in you. So I thought, okay, that's all cool. But then what happens is that I start to get an element of public success, you know, with TV shows and books. And one point after my first book, just before my second book, The Stress Solution came out, I was in Penguin Life in London, same publisher as you. And we had a meeting about four weeks to go before the stress solution comes out. And I didn't realize at the time, but you'll notice this. And Julie, maybe you won't realize this, but you go into Penguin offices, you go into publishing offices, it is very, very white and middle class. And again, I never saw it because kind of my upbringing has been like that. And I've been trained, I almost will not look at that. I never see race. I never think about those things. The reason it came up for me, and the reason I'm speaking about it now is because in that meeting, someone from sales said to me, good news, Rongan, this big chain are gonna stock the stress solution. They didn't stock the four pillar plan because they already had another book by an Indian doctor on the shelves. Like there's any space for one Indian doctor. Yeah, exactly. But but here's the thing. I didn't say anything. No one said anything. It was just matter of fact. And we just moved on with the conversation. And I remember when I got the train home that evening, I had this kind of discontent inside me. I thought, I don't know what I felt, but I felt uncomfortable. I felt, you know, I didn't say anything. And do you feel it now as you're speaking? I feel it a little bit. I mean, I have addressed it. You know, about a year later, I sent, a, I think it was a, a beautiful email to the team at Penguin, a really untriggered, a really kind email explaining what happened, explaining how I felt afterwards and how I wonder if we could talk about this to prevent this happening at some point in the future for any other author. And by taking that kind and compassionate and non-triggered response, okay. I got a beautiful email back from some of the senior bigwigs at Penguin. We've had a meeting on, you know, what happened there. Uh, it was no one at Penguin, to be clear, right? And, uh, and even the person who actually did it in that organization, I even don't hold any grudges against them. They're probably just in marketing and they probably it was probably just a matter-of-fact thing that they said. I very much have the belief now, and I choose to have this belief, Julia, that if I was that person, I'd be doing the same as them. This is how I try and approach life. Because I, I really feel that if I was that person with their upbringing, with their childhood, with their experiences of the world, with their boss, with the bullying they've had, I would be seeing the world the same as them. So I, I don't hold a grudge. But the point I'm trying to get to is that I think the race thing has bothered me even in the past few years. That's one incident. But I've seen other incidents, big, big TV shows, that I've gone on and helped. And then when it comes around to book PR, they go, oh, you know, we, we, you know, we have you on for other things, we can't have you, uh, of course, for your book. And then you see other people, and the truth is, you see other white middle-class presenters going on like me for other stuff, they all get invited on for their books. Now, I then, I will never vocalize that. I think it's the first time I vocalize that publicly. And again, I have no proof or evidence for you that I can, and that's the problem with this stuff. You can't, but I have a deep knowing. That it's so subtle and there's a bias. There is a bias, I've experienced it. And then what my my default pattern, Julia, is to go quiet, to go inward and go, right, okay. There's this phrase that I don't think is particularly healthy, but it has driven me 
in the past, after that meeting at Penguin, it did drive me. I'm like, okay, you're not gonna stop my book. Okay, I'm gonna keep writing really good books until you have no option but to stock them. That's not healthy. That's not a healthy emotion. I don't have that anymore, Julie, but I did a few years back. That's a bit like your childhood, isn't it? It's like getting 100 out of 100. It's the same. Yeah, exactly. For me, it's like, okay, that's the problem. Right, I'm going to get to a point now where you can't not stop my books. And I'm at that point now. You are. But the point is, I want to, and I, I think I certainly did that with my last book. Like I said before, the same act What's the energy behind it? That determines the end, but the energy of lack. Okay, I'm going to show you. That's not a healthy, calm energy. But the energy of, I'm going to write as good a book as I'm capable of right now to help as many people as I can. Not because it's going to say something about who I am as a person, but just because I want to express the information I've got and the, the helpful ideas I think that I think are going to help people. It's a very different energy. I think there's a lot there in that one's relationship with oneself and one's different identities, one racial, cultural, education, gender, you know, all the different identities. Yeah. Fortunately, is not a fixed process. It's an iterative process. And that the requirement of each of our identities is two things. One is to be loved and to belong and the other one is to stand out and attract a mate so those are two parts of every part of our identity and what I'm understanding about you as a British Indian is that the right word no no I'm fine with that I'm happy being called a British Indian like I think Judy if I could just pause you there for a moment I think this is a big issue like let's say it was the wrong term which I don't think it is right let's say it was Okay. I could choose to get offended by that or I could go, you know what, Julie's just trying to have a conversation. Her intention is pure. Yeah. And I think we honestly get far too caught up in, are you saying the right thing? Is that the current accepted term that the public or some some body somewhere has designated as the right word for someone like me? It is disconnecting, trying to be right when I'm trying to connect. Exactly. It doesn't matter to me. And actually, I think on an individual level, one thing I've really tried to do more of, I mean, in fact, I'm writing a chapter on this at the moment, is take less offense, right? Let it be. Let it be. You know, if, if you don't like something, someone's, it's like, okay, fine. It's not for you. It's not about you. Like, train yourself to be offended less. I think it's so helpful. So, just to bat to you, I think it's the I think it's the correct term. I'm okay with the term. I'm more than okay with it. Please don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. But also, what's so interesting is I could feel this surge of shame. It's like, oh my god, have I done something that's offensive? Which is the last thing in the world I want to do as a person to you. And I think when people are very highly hyper aroused, they're much more offended because they have no impulse control. So they're much more in fight or flight. I'm going to interrupt our conversation for a message from our sponsor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I know that life can sometimes feel overwhelming and throws us many challenges. It can be easy for many of us to feel bogged down with the cost of living crisis, post-COVID fractures. Even the usual daily routine can become a struggle. Maybe you're not showing up in the way you want to. As a psychotherapist, 
I know firsthand how much therapy can help you get that one step closer to the best version of you. It can help you feel empowered to make those important decisions and be more confident to take on anything life throws at you. So if you're thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, and can be done in the comfort of your own home. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash therapyworks today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash therapyworks. And actually, I'd like to know what your definition of your best self is, because I don't know if there is a best self. But what has helped you find your way into being you and the version of you that is more robust, so it doesn't get so offended and feels more confident? What's helped you? What have you learned, as it were? I've been on a personal growth journey since my dad died, because that's what provided space for me. Like, I didn't have time before then. I was so busy seven days a week, mm. rushing around, helping dad three times a day, trying to see my wife, trying to see my young baby boy at the time. You know, I didn't have time. And without time, you won't get to know yourself. Yeah, you need space and time. You do, and you have to make time. And I appreciate some people may go, I, I, I literally don't have time at the moment for myself. Okay, fine. Even five minutes once a week, will just start to tap into who you actually really are. We need to know that. So so for me, Dad Dying did two things. It gave me space and time to reflect because all that time I would have spent caring, suddenly now, oh, I've got a lot of time in my day relative to the last 10 years. But also I was so attached to being a carer for my dad. There was a ginormous Everest-sized hole inside of me when my dad died. I took it really bad. It took me a long time to get over. But that's what caused all the growth. Yeah. So that big hole is where you find yourself by actually addressing the hole. 100%. 100%. Like if my dad was still alive, I don't know if I'd be the person who I am today. In fact, I know I would not be. Mm. And and in and in many ways. And in fact, Julia, this is probably shaped slightly from one of the conversations you had with me on my podcast. Uh, one thing I've always done since our first conversation together is I never now use the term passed away or you've lost someone. I always say die. Mm. So you've died. And that, that is down to you because something happened in that in that conversation where I thought, yeah, why hide it? You do. I noticed that. I remembered that, actually. Why try and soften it? And my dad died. That's the brutal reality of what happens. You know, dad's dying mm. was a gift. It was a gift. All these lessons I've learned, it's a gift. Yeah. At the time, not one that you felt at all, but in retrospect, you can really, really see it that's so interesting yeah and actually it wasn't a gift at the time I wasn't I didn't have the emotional toolbox to deal with my dad's death I didn't I'd never come across death before yes with patience but there is a professional distance there 
So it's the first time I had to confront death. I think in society, as we've spoken about before, we hide mm. death. Like you don't see it. It's hidden away. Whereas, you know, it's interesting in India, even to this day, someone dies, you know, there's the body is burnt in front of the family and people. You literally see. And smell. You can smell it. And actually, I'm coming around to the view now that maybe that's more healthy because kids growing up, they did see it. This is just a matter. It's not it's part of life. We're not hiding it. We're not trying mm. to say lost, you know, or, or any yeah. other thing to soften it. We're, we're saying it's real. And I'm very particular with my children now about death. We don't hide it. We talk about it. In fact, when my auntie died last summer, at, you know, in her early 60s, unexpectedly, went to a funeral in Northampton. And in Indian culture, in this country, you um, just before the funeral, you can you visit the body and the, there's a ceremony done around the body with the well, you can actually see the body in the coffin. This is a Hindu ceremony. It was a Hindu ceremony just before the actual yeah. funeral. And my kids yeah. last summer were what, 11 and eight. And me and my wife were discussing it. You know, are they ready for this? Should they go? And we decided to take them. And I felt really good that we took them to that because they saw their, my auntie, their sort of like a grandma to them who they they actually saw mm. oh that's what happens after death that's the body but there's no life and vitality within it and that's what death looks like yeah and i think that's been really really important so back to your question what's helped me dad dying the space it gave me the lessons it taught me i have done therapy you know i've done a particular type of therapy called ifs internal family systems which i have found brilliant Dick Schwartz. yeah, in, yeah dick schwartz incredibly helpful for me again not mm. saying it's for everyone. All the different parts of you. Yeah, and learning to accept that all these different parts of me are real. And at different times, different parts will come to the surface. And mm. understanding that I am actually a complex makeup of all of these different parts. That's helped me. Part of your parts is still being at times performative or at times a people pleaser. And at other times you're robust and confident and kind of out there so that it isn't like when you've had therapy that you lose the parts that you don't want it's just that you have the capacities to support yourself given that you have all these different parts yeah I think what all the work has done whether it be the long walks the reflection on dad the therapy some of the body work I've had done you know I can see how certain parts of tightnesses I had were actually emotional embodied I was holding on to emotions in certain parts and as I release those emotions that body part loosens up so it wasn't about constantly mm. stretching it it's like no 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 your body was holding tension there for a reason um what it's done Julia is give me a real deep sense of awareness self-awareness and I think that's the most important thing that I have acquired over the past few years the awareness to know when it's an old part of me and I know that sounds so simple but when it's when it's happening and you're not aware you just think it's you you don't know why you're frustrated you don't know why but but when you can have that distance you keep digging the hole yeah. don't you and jumping in the hole but awareness allows you to go there's that hole there it is why oh you're sleep deprived this is going with mum that's why okay cool you know have a few days rest and then consider how you might want to address this and and i feel the biggest thing that i do julia which has really empowered me is 
I look at every bit of friction in my life now as an opportunity for me to learn something about myself. So instead of looking out there for answers, I don't anymore. I literally don't. That's amazing. Like if I'm getting triggered or reacted for anyone, my the, the trained default response now most of the time is, why is that bothering you? What is that bringing up in me? And what that does, Julia, and why I'm so passionate about this is because it means I'm not reliant on the world around me and people around me and things around me to be a certain way. I realize that I have the power to choose how I respond or what slant I put on this particular situation. And I actually think it's such a, it's such a simple thing at its core, but it's so effective. And so complex. Um, that Viktor Frankl quote, at any moment you have a, 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 the opportunity to choose what your response is. And what I'm getting is in being able to choose like going inwards rather than being angry with the person out there or blaming or shaming or you you then have agency. I had a conversation on Monday that left me so furious, I cannot even tell you. I could literally nearly drove my car off the road. Oh, wow. And I was repeating this looping, ruminating thing about what the person had said. And luckily, <laughs> I'm 63, I should know by now. I didn't send a text, which I wanted to do. I didn't reply. I didn't say anything. I waited a few days and then I worked out what it was in me and what I actually felt. Yeah. Because when you're in that heightened state, you're in no place. You're not using your brain, your memory, your emotions. You're just using your attack when you're under threat. And I think, is that what you're saying? Were you saying something more than that? No, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. But I just add to that, that for me at least, like I just reflected on nearly 10 years since dad died, right? It's like you've been at the University of Life, right? Doing your job and succeeding. 100%. And actually, I wouldn't trade in a single one of those experiences. Even what happened at Penguin. Nothing. I wouldn't trade it in because without those experiences, you're not given the opportunity to learn something that's still bothering you. While mm. life is going all hunky-dory, you think everything's fine. Yeah, yeah, in the sweet zone. Yeah, but then the problem is, if that goes on for too long, you, you, you in many ways become ill-equipped to then deal with anything, you know. But actually, it never goes on forever, does it? The sweet zone, however successful you are, it's never always sweet, right? Really interestingly, a couple of months ago, I spoke to the record producer, Rick Rubin, when he was in London. Now, we've not released it yet. It's coming out in January when his book's out. But he's regarded as the one of the best record producers of all time. He's done... Adele, Jay-Z, I think he's done Red Hot Chili Pepper. Jeez. I mean, he's, he's literally done everyone in every genre. But really interestingly, Rick shared with me that in his 20s, I think he started being a record producer maybe at 2021. And he, he basically produces the Beastie Boys first album, which is one of the all-time best-selling records of all time, right? So <laughs> he goes straight to the top and he continues staying at the top. And that he shared that later on in his 20s, someone in the industry made a negative comment about him. And he said it was a nothing comment, mm. literally. He said it was a nothing comment, but it sent him into depression. Well, but you have further to fall if you've built up on this thing of success. But what he said, Julia, was, mm. you know, my childhood, my life, my career, 
had just been great until then. I hadn't had any conflict. So I didn't have the tools to deal with just this minor, minor comment. And I, and I found that I, I've been meditating on that quite a lot because I find that really interesting. Actually, we think we want a life without conflict, but maybe we don't. Maybe if we can get good at conflict and use conflict as a way of teaching us. And distress. Maybe we're constantly kind of finessing our soul. We're finessing our approach to life. We're, you know, I look at these things as gifts now. Oh man, it's a gift that you've been triggered. Yeah. No, I get it. I'm not always like that. And here's the other thing people often say to me when you talk about this stuff, and I, and I love your perspective here, Julia. Some people say, well, yeah, but what about sometimes people's behavior is really bad. So surely it is about that person's behavior. And the way I look at it, I go, okay, sure, this is not saying you should accept and tolerate inappropriate or poor behavior. No, but if you can, first of all, take a pause, understand why it's bothering you so much, and then make peace with that, then you're much better able to put in appropriate boundaries. You're much better able to make changes, which will mean that that behavior is less likely to continue. That's certainly my take. What, what, what's your take on that? I completely agree. And I'm sort of thinking around the Christmas table or big family holidays. You know, there's always the uncle or the grandparent or someone. Families trigger us, don't they? Because they're embodied and we have all the sights and signs and smells of being members of our family. So rather than getting battle ready and kind of knowing and dreading it, I think what you're talking about is real wisdom of, of course, there are going to be things that upset me, but what I do with what upsets me yeah. is in my gift. And I can choose to make sense of why that has particularly upset me. And that's owning myself, supporting myself, giving myself the confidence that I am worthy of knowing what it is that's upset me, naming it, rather than like always putting the power outside of yourself. So it's empowering. And then as you slow down and you connect with yourself, you're in a really strong position to respond in a way that might create change in the other person, that might stop a huge family row, because you're coming from a place of connected yeah. human calm, which is transmittable in the same way, as emotionally contagious, as fury is. But if you come from genuine calm, not, you know, sometimes people speak slowly and they kind of think they're in control. Yeah. But if it's from a heartfelt center, people pick that up and they respond to the to your heart, basically, to your connectedness. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think understanding, understanding these things and then practicing them, because I think that's the key element, isn't it? Yeah, because you'll make a mistake. Yeah, practicing. Exactly. If you can truly be honest with yourself, you know, that's the thing you can't hide from yourself. Like in those quiet moments, you know what really went down. And <laughs> if you can be honest with yourself, you can kind of own it and go, yeah, you know what? I did react then. This is the reason. Okay, let me sit with that. Next time this happens, my intention is not to react in the same way. That is so powerful. You may still react, but you keep doing that. At some point, your life will shift. And I feel now a lot of these individual learnings that I've had... I feel they've hugely impacted the way I communicate with my wife. How lovely for both of you. Yeah, and, and, and likewise, Vid's been on her own journey of dealing with her own stuff. And as we individually have gone and dealt with some of our own baggage from childhood and early life, we then bring 
a different form of us to our relationships. And it's not far from my 15th year wedding anniversary with Vid. So yeah, almost been married for 15 years. And I can honestly say, we've never been closer. We've never been more connected. We've never been able to communicate with the kind of depth that we can do now. And a lot of that has not been easy, just to be really clear. A lot of that has taken work and time. But I would almost say the relationship we have now is not the same as the one we had 15 years ago. It's not even the same as the one we had five years ago. And and actually, one of these things you commonly hear, I heard this in some mutual friends of ours recently that said, oh, you know, I don't know what's happened to her. She's just not the same person she was when I married her. And part of me is thinking, yeah, I'm. well, who is? Who is the same person? Hey, actually, if you're stuck <laughs> being that same person you were 15 years ago, maybe that's the problem in that relationship or, or one of the contributing factors. So that's why I think therapists, what you do, and I, I think I said this to you before, part of me thinks, maybe I should have been a therapist. You know, I kind of feel that's where it's at. You'd have been a great therapist. You'd have loved it. Yeah, but I kind of feel I sort of do that with my patients, really. And your guests. Although I'm not a trained therapist or a trained psychologist, I kind of feel that's what I end up doing a lot with my patients because that's kind of what's needed to impact their long-term mm. health and well-being. I mean, we need to draw to a close. But what you're really saying is... If we're going to live life, we need to recognize that life is change and that we are adapted to grow through change. And if we can find ways of supporting ourselves to let the change change us, and pain is the agent of change often, then we have many opportunities to really live a very rich life. And when we kind of limit ourselves with very fixed beliefs or ways of operating or ways of being in relationship in our partnership or as a child or as a parent, we then live a much narrower bandwidth of life. And that's quite flat and empty. So I've got one more question. So given these last 10 years, Roman, which have been ones of enormous learning and also huge success. You must be surprised how successful you've been. Where does that leave you in the present, how you feel about yourself and what do you want for maybe the next few years? We'll make it a shorter skyline, five years. How do I feel about the success? I'm very proud of the success. I'm pleased with the impact my success is having on the lives of hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people. It's a real meaning. But the key thing I've learned through that success is that it's not the success that's making me happy. I've learned hugely that success and happiness are two very different things. They can overlap for sure for some people at certain times in their life, but more often than not, they're often different. And one is much thinner than the other. Yeah, and I think I've definitely fallen into the trap, like many people do, that they're the same things. But we see time and time again, successful people feeling unfulfilled. People in all walks of life getting to their 30s or 40s thinking, I've ticked off all the boxes that I thought I needed to tick when I was a kid that my parents told me about, that society told me about. But there's still something missing. And so as someone who 
needed external validation growing up to feel good about themselves. What's really interesting with me is that I've got all the external validation I could have possibly wanted over the past few years. But now that external validation doesn't do what it would have done for me 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, in many ways, it would have artificially elevated my ego. In our trade, it's called the false self, not the true self. Yeah. Okay. There you go. I love that. And that's a very fragile place to be because I've been in that place before. It's very fragile because if you let the good stuff go to your head, the negative stuff is going to take you down just as far. Like the producer. Exactly. Whereas what I found now is that I'm just a lot more level, that the, the praise, the positivity just makes me feel, oh, good. I'm, I'm super glad that helped. It doesn't make me feel really, really artificially high, but it also means I don't get dragged down to those deep lows where you feel worthless, right? So I feel a lot more level and grounded. So what do I want for the next few years? Well, yes, I'm really interested to know. I want more presence. Nice. If I try and get to the essence of what I think life is about, Julia, I think it's presence. Can I be present in every single moment? Can you tell me first what present means to you? Let me explain what present doesn't mean, first of all, right? Okay. I'm sitting in my podcast studio now, which is in my garden. So I could have a brilliant two-hour conversation in here with a guest that I'm really looking forward to speaking to and be absorbed. If I then go in to have dinner with my wife and kids and I'm still thinking about that conversation and I'm not able to be present with them in that moment, that's not success. That's doing them a disservice, actually, and myself a disservice. But when I say presence, I mean, can I fully be in every single moment, mind, body, and soul. That is a big ask. Can I just say that is a big, big ask. I can't do that. No. I, and I, I, when I say that, let me just try and reframe it slightly. Can I be more present than I currently am? So what I'm looking for is an improvement. Yeah. Can I keep doing the work, keep looking for moments of friction in my daily life to teach me something about myself. Can I hopefully over time get triggered less? I already get triggered very rarely now compared to the past. And honestly, I, I feel these days I'm- Much less febrile. Yeah, I'm a pretty calm person. Even I think my wife would say, you're totally chilled. Like if someone says something, it's like, yeah, I'm already seeing their side of it. By consciously practicing that, Julia, it was an effort, but by consciously showing up day after day and doing that regularly, it's now become my conditioned default response. So you have to do less work at the other end when you get triggered. Like a lot of, you know, what, what I find really ironic, I talk a lot about things like meditation and breath work and journaling and- Being in nature. Being in nature. These things are all great for sure. But actually- Often we need a lot of these fixes to deal with the overload of stress in our lives. But once we learn to get triggered less and be more compassionate and understand someone else's point of view, I find we actually need those solutions less because we've got less stress that needs managing. I, can, I tell you what, I haven't heard it said like you've said it in the way that I'm picturing what I'm just about to say, which is the presence as I understand it from you, means that you have the capacity 
to step in from your world into the world of another person, connect with them, have empathy with them, and then step back into your world, a kind of much more reflective interaction. So then the other person is no longer a threat. They're no longer someone who can hurt you, like from a kind of evolutionary perspective, because you've opened your heart with compassion and you've allowed your heart to reach across, like with me in this conversation, I can feel you. I, even though we're online, I can feel your honesty. I can feel your heart. I can feel the clarity of the passion of what you're thinking. And so then it's much less oppositional. So you're not going to see the world as a place of danger. You're going to see the world from much more a place of safety. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that because I, I love the way you frame that. It wasn't how I was thinking about it in my head. Certainly wasn't how I was rationalizing it. But as I hear it and I sit with it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. And I guess, for example, I was just trying to process that. I was thinking, yeah, okay, so why would I ever perceive my kids as a threat? I wouldn't. But... If I'm in that kind of slightly tense, stressed state thinking about something else, then if that's my being over the dinner table, then little things that they may say may be perceived as a threat because I'm not in a calm state to receive it. So I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. I think that really nails what it is really, really quite beautifully. Oh, that's a very nice moment to pause and connect. And I don't want to end the conversation, but to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Ron. Julia, thanks for inviting me. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialise in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Lovely to see you and to be recording on our second series. Did you have first thoughts about... I thought it was a wonderful, fascinating conversation. Yeah, there was so much there, wasn't there? I just sort of do a lot of distilling of my thoughts or I could talk for too long. One thing that I definitely resonated with me was the difference between doing the same thing, but where it comes from in you means a very different experience, not only for you, as in when you were talking about looking after his dad from a place of duty, but not from a sort of authentic place. I've often thought about that even just when you say something to someone, if it comes from the right place, it is often said and received in the way that it's intended. Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes complete sense. And from our Rogerian kind of learnings of what authenticity is, is when there's this internal alignment of what you're feeling and what you're experiencing with the external response to what you say and what you show, when there's alignment that is congruence and authenticity. Mm. And in some ways, what he perfectly described with his father when it was out of duty and real love, which he did really feel. But when he 
shifted his internal response to one of choice rather than duty. That gave him a a sense of agency that was liberating, it felt like to me. Mm. It's a different quality of energy when something is what you choose to do than what's something that you have to do. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing, though, because I agree that when something comes from an authentic place, it usually lands very differently. And yet I found it so interesting when he was saying about when he records his podcasts, how often the conversations he thinks haven't gone that well, that have felt uncomfortable. Actually, those sometimes are the most authentic and most sort of come from the heart in a way that I think that's what we are trying to do in our podcast is is be really authentic. And even though I'm always like trying to be authentic, think that I'm being authentic, I can't tell whether it's landing as authentic or not. No, you can never know how it's going to land. I do think, though, that feeling of discomfort is something to do with vulnerability, though, as I understood what he was saying. You don't always know why you feel uncomfortable, right? But that's part of what was powerful about those conversations, from what I understood he said. Like the layers were stripped back. Yeah, that he said things that we put out there like, oh, did I say too much? Was that the right thing? Because you've kind of gone beyond your comfort zone, right, of talking about what you know. Yeah, so the discomfort was coming from a vulnerable place, not from a, like, worrying that he was coming across. Maybe that just says more about me. (laughs) I'm thinking about how I'm coming across. (laughs) But also, I think it's when it's performative, it's when you've said it many times and so you know what you're saying And it comes out very fluently. I think as we're talking right now is a perfect example of we're discovering what we think as we're speaking and as we're hearing each other. So hearing you has enabled me to feel it and see it and remember it slightly differently. So we impact each other. One of the things I thought about this 10 year, such a long time period that he he had caring for his dad, it's it made me feel hope because it made me feel like I think I can imagine being in a situation where you feel like your life has kind of been taken away from you if you have that long a chunk of time doing something which even though you feel like it's the right thing to do isn't necessarily your number one choice of thing to do so whether that's a partner or a child or a parent the idea that then you can go on and create this hugely fulfilling life and do this incredibly powerful internal work that then you can kind of spread to other people I just found that incredibly inspirational that like life hasn't ended just because you might be in a phase where you feel stuck there is a future if you make it happen Mm. I think um it's that thing isn't it when you're in pain and suffering it feels like it can be endless or if something's happening that you don't want to be happening, no one can give you the date of when this is going to end and something might change. You're just in it. That thing of hope is, is having the belief, isn't it, that that isn't true, it just feels this way. But hope is possibility. Where certainty ends, hope begins. Mm. And then actually doing something. He could have stopped caring from his father and just carried on his life in this narrow way, but he didn't. So it's also choice and opportunity and, and all these other things. And persistence. Mm, he talked a lot about sort of that agency. The thing that is the reverse of me is how he sees pain and discomfort as an opportunity to learn. He had that anecdote of when somebody had upset him and he reverted back to his old kind of people-pleasing behaviours like we often do under pressure 
And then he thought about it and then he kind of reclaimed his real self and that he sees discomfort not as something to be avoided, but as the opportunity to learn from. And that is often kind of conflict with other people or where you've been upset. And I mean, I hate conflict. <laughs> and uh, I think he hates conflict too. <laughs> yeah, they, I think he does. But it's such a brave attitude, which I don't think I've got really. I mean, I would like to be influenced by him. I would actually like that conversation for me to have a little shift of perspective and to see like when I'm absolutely furious, like this is an opportunity to learn which, you know, I don't feel right now. Yes, he's definitely sort of talked about this kind of Zen approach to life, this I am not going to react from a place of anger, I am going to react from a place of compassion and learning. And I think it's an amazing way to be. And, I, you know, it sort of makes you think of those really famous, amazing pacifists like Gandhi, you know, sort of saying like, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But... I also think there's something that slightly appeals to me about when somebody is an asshole, being like, you're being an asshole. <laughs> and so there's, there's part of me that really would like to be this Zen person who, who can take pain or can take insults, like really appalling insults that he has experienced. Racism. And find a way to learn and set boundaries and all, all coming from this beautiful place. And then there's also part of me that just wants to be like, mm, F you. <laughs> like, I have both. I think I have both. I listened to a really interesting podcast this week, actually. Um, you know, there's a th podcast, Therapist Uncensored, and they were replaying an old episode by a woman called Loretta Ross, who is a human rights activist in the States. And as I was listening to Rongan and I was also listening to that, they sort of felt like they were both talking in my ears about this idea of racism. And, and she has this theory that she teaches about the five C's, which are like five ways of responding to, in this case, racism, but it could be all sorts of sort of insults that's, and she has sort of you know, calling out, you know, cancelling, which both sort of that kind of more aggressive, like, fuck off kind of response, right? But she talks about them as like the last resorts of ways of responding. And that calling in so sort of responding with like compassion and respect or calling on which is when you sort of go excuse me <laughs> what did you just say by like giving people another opportunity to do better I thought she was very interesting about that those are sort of the ideal and the primary first responses because she talks about shame being a very ineffective way to challenge people essentially which, which is a bit different when, when we're talking on this sort of public spectrum as opposed to a one-to-one -one, but I was really interested in what he was saying about his response to racism and wanting to respond from a place of reflection and compassion, because it does open that ability to have a more meaningful dialogue, isn't it? Whereas if you meet charge with charge, what you tend to get is going in the opposite directions. And also he demonstrated and lived that with me. So I wasn't sure if calling him a British Indian or I even feel anxious saying it now was the right way of describing him. And he was saying that he chose not to be offended and he wasn't offended. I think that if we're talking about gears, so from what you're talking about, is that from when you cancel, you're like in fourth gear of attack mode. You know, your brain is on fight or flight. You don't have the capacity to think or use your hippocampus or use your wisdom. And if you can slow yourself down and you respond 
where you call in or you connect with yourself first, then you can choose what your response is much more and you're much more likely to be heard. But also not having that negative bias, choosing not to be offended. Yes, but I mean, it's context too, right? I, I think in that conversation, it was very clear that your intention was to get it in inverted commas, right. And I think that part of what our society is rightly going through right now is like, how do we have these conversations? And you have to be able to have the conversations because otherwise, how do you know how to get it right? I mean, I think that they feel awkward and uncomfortable. And even talking about it now, I'm like, am I saying something wrong? But unless you have those conversations, then there isn't a way forward, I don't think. But but I think in that context, even though you might not have got it right, in which case my hope would be he would say, actually, I'm more comfortable with this way of putting it. And you would have just used that. <laughs> he talked about sort of, as we said, not getting offended. And I think also as a white person, you can also choose not to be offended when someone pushes back, when someone says, actually, I'd prefer not that term. And I know from my own experiences, and I've had some very painful ones around getting it wrong and I remember this was a long time ago before this kind of all exploded maybe more than 10 years ago in my training when I did get it wrong and someone challenged me and I was so upset and I felt so ashamed and it took like a really 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 long time for me to process it and the thing that I most learned from that experience was realizing that the parts of me that might get it wrong but also the parts of me that might be challenging in that my class, my ethnicity, my privilege, that might mean that people have a certain reaction to me. I can't hide them <laughs> or I can't not get it wrong if I don't know. The only thing I can be is more robust about receiving the feedback about them. I, I can't be less of a person in the world or try and not get it wrong all the time because that's no way to live. So somehow feeling more able to manage if the moment does go wrong. I think you're right. And I remember times in training that I felt ashamed and learned. But do you both think there's a generational thing between us, for instance, about learning about class, race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality? Do you think my generation and me, I don't actually want you necessarily to give me feedback, actually, is less open than yours? I, I don't think you are less open because... I think you are still wanting to learn and read. And, you know, I don't think openness is necessarily about agreeing. I think it's literally that. It's being open to new ideas and new ways of thinking. I mean, I think definitely the sort of stereotype is that it's a more generational thing. But, but I think there's a distinction between openness and agreeing. Do you want to say what that is? I think maybe quite a few of your generation might be open to new ideas. They might not necessarily agree with them all. I would agree with that. And that there's something to learn in both directions, right? It's bi-directional. Yeah, that you come from a different perspective. I guess the hope is that the long-range arm of society is progressing towards the good and change is difficult and hard and is going to meet resistance. But maybe I'm overly optimistic, but that it is progress. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's time, isn't it, that we learned that it isn't people of colour's issue, but it's ours to learn and to be open to learning and to change our attitudes. 
and and attitudes do change. So I mean, I think right now, gender, for example, pronouns, whether women, trans women should be allowed to sport, all of those things that have such huge reactions from some people. Right now, they they seem such a huge, huge thing in society. But then if you look 50 years ago, it wasn't that different about sort of homosexual rights and what homosexuals should be allowed to do. And now, at least in England, those things don't seem such a sort of hot button issue. So I think progress does happen. It does change over time, but it's not easy. And it's painful. Learning is painful often. And that links back to what Rongan said is that, I mean, not going to him specifically, but that comfort isn't a learning zone. Like when we're in a comfortable place and we're feeling easier that we know it all, then we're not learning. But when we go out of our comfort zone and there can be degrees of comfort that we can manage at any given time for lots of different reasons, that is where growth and learning emerges. And often that I read a whole damn book about it. Often that feels uncomfortable. <laughs> did you? Did you? Yeah, did you write a book about change? <laughs> I don't know that you read it. <laughs> it sort of brings me to thinking about his last comment about the things that he would like to be as more present. And one way of I think about presence is being in some sort of openness to flow, right? That you're connected in that moment so that you're feeling what is live, as it were, and connected to what's present in front of you and almost maybe one of the ways I'm thinking about what we're talking about is often where things can go wrong is when we get very rigid when actually we're not open and things don't flow and we don't have that biological analogy of like the semi-permeable membrane like the stuff flows in and stuff flies out and we can change and then we adapt to the world and the world adapts to us and there's a flow and that's a very psychologically healthy state to be in and when things can get stuck is when we hold something very very rigidly and it no longer is adapted or aligned with the world or the relationships or the situation that we're in and the presence one thing that presence does is allows us to be with what is there rather than with the thing in our head of what things should be are we've decided they are you're not open in that state whereas presence is a state of openness i love that and I think that is really important in your personal life but also as a professional I I know that I have had times with clients where like I have wanted or like in my head sort of wanted progress to be quicker or and the importance of staying where somebody is at like being Mm. present with them and that change is unlikely to happen unless me as a therapist can accept but I know I definitely something that I've talked about supervision with various different clients of like it's sometimes hard to be present with someone who feels like it's quite stuck absolutely or if they're talking about something that you find hard to be present with yourself yeah so good both of you that's so interesting thank you both so much that was really interesting a particular thank you to Rong and Chatterjee for an amazing conversation Do please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it. If you can think of someone who you think might benefit from it, also do share it. Until next week, thank you.